Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of the i3 Insights podcast. My name is Daniel Grioli and I'm Market Fox columnist for i3. I'm here in Boston at the offices of GMO and I'm speaking to Lucas White. He is the portfolio manager for the climate change and resources strategies here at GMO. And I'm really looking forward to chatting with Lucas about all things climate related and how that can be used as an investment theme. So, Lucas, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. The weather has finally improved here in Boston. It's been quite cold the last couple of days, so climate has been something that's definitely been on my mind. But uh, how did you get started in the area of, of climate change as an investment theme? It really started with our natural resources strategy, which we launched back in 2011, uh, driven by a, a lot of research and work that Jeremy Grantham, our founder, had done uh, on the finite nature of natural resources. And his thesis was really that the growing demand uh, for uh, natural resources was going to start to run up against the finite, cheap, easy to access and process um, kind of supplies that we know are out there. And where you have growing demand and a finite of su- supply, you can guess where you think uh, prices are going to go and that there's going to be upward pressure on prices in the coming decades. So I was lucky enough to work with Jeremy and others at GMO to, to design a strategy and figure out what it would look like to invest in natural resources. Should we do it via futures or swaps or directly invest in natural resources or do it via the public equity market, private equity market and all those kinds of things. And as we did that research and, and thought about uh, what a strategy might look like, I spent a lot of time thinking about the risks uh, to investing in the resources sector uh, because it's perceived to be uh, by the investment community an incredibly risky, volatile, cyclical place to invest, uh, kind of a scary place to invest. Uh, and I spent a lot of time looking at it. I could really only find one risk that, that worried me as a long-term investor, and that was fossil fuel stranded asset risk. If you're in a sector where it's 70% fossil fuels, like the resources sector, uh, and there is stranded asset risk out there, what might that mean for your strategy and how would you design a strategy to handle that? Uh, So to manage that strategy, we've done a few things. One thing is in our resources strategy, we have a significantly lower exposure to energy than the cap-weighted sector, which once again is about 70% energy. Our competitors tend to be more like 80 to 90% energy. Uh, and, and that's basically fossil fuels, all of that. We're at about 35% energy. Uh, and within fossil fuels, we've always excluded the 
resources that have the highest stranded asset risk, so the coal, the tar sands, the heavy oil companies, uh, where if there are going to be stranded assets, those are the ones that are going to get hit first. Uh, and the third thing that we did is we've always targeted some of our exposure in energy to be to clean energy, to wind, to solar, uh, to clean power generation and other clean energy efforts. Uh, and it was really that, that work investing in clean energy as part of our resources strategy, where we had a lot of success for a number of years from around 2011 when we launched our strategy until uh, 2017 when we launched our climate change strategy that, that really evolved into uh, our, our kind of broader uh, strategy that, that we're, we're quite excited about. There's a few interesting comments uh, that I picked up on in your answer there. The first one was that this all started with Jeremy Grantham's insight that there was likely to be a growing demand for clean energy sources in the future because obviously we have a, a problem with climate change. How has that played out since Jeremy had that original insight? Well, what Jeremy's thesis was less about growth and demand for clean energy. It was more about growth and demand for natural resources, which is what got us focused on launching a natural resources strategy specifically. And then once we were digging into what a, a resources strategy would look like, that's when we started to, to look, dig into clean energy more specifically and spend a lot more time researching it. At the same time, it's interesting because Jeremy's an interesting guy, that he was out there spending a lot of his time for about five years there doing research into the resources sector. He's also a huge advocate for efforts to address climate change, and it's really his passion uh, in life. And he has a foundation, as, as I know you're aware, uh, that's dedicated to the environment, but with a specific focus on climate change. So his passion for natural resources, well, I don't know if I would say that it's a passion, his interest in natural resources and the dynamics in the resources markets kind of interestingly uh, interacted with uh, his, his passion uh, for, for efforts to uh, protect the environment and address climate change. Uh, in terms of the demand for resources, natural resource demand just continues to grow because we have the emerging markets developing, urbanizing, uh, the middle class is developing, uh, and you have huge economies doing that. It's one thing for the United States back in the early 1900s to go through that stage of industrialization uh, and modernization of, of the economy and development of the manufacturing sector. We had 100 million people back in the early 1900s, mid-1900s. Well, China's doing it with 1.3 billion people or, or whatever they have. India has 1.2 billion people. I mean, these are huge, huge economies that are developing. And, and that's going, you would expect, if their development is anything like past economic developments, there to be many decades uh, of growth and demand for, for commodities. It sounds like there's two elements to what you do, and, and one is figuring out parts of the market to avoid, and you mentioned stranded assets as a possible area where returns can, can suffer, but also there's a proactive dimension which is trying to figure out uh, the parts of the resources complex that might benefit. How do you balance the two? Which is more important, do you think? Well, one is very, very difficult, and, and I think that's uh, the effort from various asset managers or various people in the investment community to try to specifically quantify their climate risk uh, in their portfolios. I'm not sure how you do that. I haven't seen uh, a plausible effort yet for that. Uh, I'll go give you an example of the problem with some of those kinds of analyses. You look at a wind turbine manufacturer. It's an industrial process. 
a lot of copper goes into it, a lot of metal and steel, and, and so it's energy intensive, material intensive. You look at a, a wind turbine manufacturer and they have a modestly positive carbon footprint. But in reality, once that, that wind turbine has been up and running for six months, uh, it's displaced as much carbon as went into its production. And then you have 24 and a half years or whatever of just displacing massive amounts of carbon dioxide. So when you're looking at their, their carbon footprint, you should see a massive negative number, and instead you see a modestly positive number. So the sign's not even right. Well, if you take inputs into any sort of climate risk model and you're plugging in inputs that have the wrong magnitude and the wrong sign, you're not going to get meaningful results. So um, I understand the, the concern with insulating your portfolio from climate risk. Uh, but it's a very, very difficult thing to do, and I don't think the data is really even available to do it at this point in time. It's much easier for me to see how you would find opportunities, companies that are going to be involved in addressing climate change, whether it's a wind turbine manufacturer or a company in the solar industry or someone working in the electric vehicle uh, value chain. There you can see these companies that are going to have secular tailwinds that are going to go for not five or ten years, but you're talking about uh, decades and decades uh, into the future. Uh, and we can find companies that are attractively priced that should generate a strong return. And if climate risk plays out the way that a lot of scientists and a lot of uh, the scientific community thinks it will, uh, then you're investing in companies that should actually benefit in that world. And to me, that's a much easier problem set to, to evaluate and analyze. That sounds reasonable. So coming back to the, your first point about the difficulties of trying to ascertain what the carbon intensity is of your, your investment portfolio, this is something that I know in Australia more and more fiduciaries such as pension funds are looking at because they, they feel that it's part of their fiduciary responsibility to have an understanding of climate risk and we actually have a situation at the moment where the member of one of the larger superannuation funds in Australia there's a, a member of one of those funds that's suing the fund and uh, the, the lawsuit is being funded by a few activist groups it's a bit of a test case he's, he's suing the fund uh, because he's unsatisfied with the answers that they've provided him on the level of carbon exposure within his portfolio. So are there any tips or suggestions that you could give investors such as superannuation funds about the right way to think about the carbon exposure in their portfolio? Uh, well, one thing I'll say is there is no silver bullet. There's no simple one number that you're going to look at. And I think that's what people want. They want to be able to look at a number and say, what's the carbon footprint of my portfolio? Well, how are you going to do that? For example, in our climate change strategy, about 15% of our por portfolios invested in uh, utilities. Well, that's, it's 3% in ACWI, the broad equity market, uh, the MSCI All Country World Index. So we have five times benchmark weight in utilities. And obviously, utilities are going to be producing a lot more emissions than a financial company or a technology company or a healthcare company. So... If you look under the covers, our utilities are much cleaner than the utilities in the broad equity market. They're being powered by uh, a generation mix dominated by coal and natural gas. Our utilities are, are being dominated by solar, wind, hydro, nuclear, clean technologies from, from uh, at least a carbon emissions perspective. Uh, and so when we look at it, we think, hey, this is a clean 
version of the portfolio. And the reason why we're investing in these utilities is because they're either involved in, uh, well, they're involved in some combination of clean power generation, which is much better than the alternative, uh, or they're going to benefit from investments in our electric grid, which need to be made in order to be able to harness a larger percentage of renewables. Uh, Because our grids are these big, archaic beasts, which weren't built uh, with the idea of an intermittent generation or distributed generation. And now we have wind turbines all over the place. We have solar panels on rooftops. Uh, sometimes they generate electricity, sometimes they don't. These are just challenges that the, the archaic grid wasn't, wasn't kind of designed to handle. Uh, well, the companies that are going to be involved in overhauling the grid are the utilities. And so not every utility in the world fits that, but there are certain specific utilities that we're excited about because they should benefit uh, from the need to modernize our grid. So it sounds like uh, there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach that can be applied to looking at these issues. Correct. You have to really understand what you're doing, what you're looking at, what the implications of the numbers are, what the weaknesses are of different approaches, uh, and it doesn't lend itself to simplicity. It's a complex problem set, Um, and, and to some extent, you have to use common sense and sometimes... People don't want to use common sense. They want a number. Uh, so. so, yeah, well, I guess that means it's going to be quite a challenge for some of these pension funds, superannuation funds, in terms of member engagement and education because everything that you've described, it's, I can imagine that would be quite tricky to explain to their members uh, what their approach actually is. Absolutely. And you talk to, um, or I, I go around and I talk to uh, lots of investment professionals who are in the ESG or sustainability or impact investment circles. Uh, and when you talk to them, a common question is, how do you measure your impact? How do you know if your strategy is cleaner or greener or whatever you want to call it, more sustainable uh, than the broad equity market or, or some other benchmark? Uh, and then when you talk through the kinds of things we've been discussing, uh, they are nodding the whole time. They get it. They've run into it before. They're not so much expecting you to have solved the problem. They're just hoping against hope that that maybe you've figured it out and cracked the atom. But uh, we we haven't cracked many atoms here at GMO, unfortunately. So, Are there any third-party data or research providers that are doing helpful work in this space? Uh, there are, but we haven't found any yet uh, who, who we have developed a, a level of comfort with yet. So there are certainly people working on the problem, and then the question is just, are they doing a good enough job? So, so far we've been talking, I guess, largely about listed equities. What asset classes can a climate change strategy encompass? I guess it could possibly also encompass infrastructure, venture capital. Is there anything else that uh, where one could apply a, a climate change thematic? Certainly, uh, you know, in the fixed income markets, I would think you could get into corporate debt for companies that are uh, involved in the fight uh, against climate change. Commodities uh, wouldn't be the first thing that would spring to your mind, but you can want to get rid of fossil fuels and not like the carbon emissions, but nothing comes for free in the world. You're just moving the burden from one set of materials to another set, at least with, with the technologies that we have. Uh, in in 2019. So if you want to get off of fossil fuels, that's brilliant, but that means you're going to need a lot of copper. You're going to need a lot of lithium, nickel, cobalt, vanadium, these other materials which underlie clean energy solutions, whether those are wind and solar or electric vehicles or uh, utility-scale energy storage. So uh, certainly uh, playing uh, climate change via the commodity markets would, would be a reasonable thing, although 
I will say that, uh, as, as a little caveat to that, I would strongly recommend that investors play it via the producers of those commodities rather than directly investing in the commodities or investing in the commodity futures. Historically, the producers have delivered much better returns than uh, the futures or, or the, uh, the commodities themselves. Okay, that's interesting. So in terms of your investment process, how does it differ from some of the more conventional GMO strategies? What's the same and what's different? Uh, well, at GMO, we have uh, a series of investment divisions. Uh, sometimes we kind of refer to ourselves as having kind of investment boutiques all under the same GMO umbrella. Uh, and we have everything from kind of pure quant uh, to pure fundamental uh, and, and everything in between. Well, maybe not everything in between, but some variants in between. Uh, for the climate change strategy and the resources strategy, both of which I manage, we have more or less an identical approach, which is we have uh, some fundamental qualitative analysis that goes into uh, defining our universe uh, and figuring out what companies fit. Like, is this company a good play on climate change or a good company uh, to be exposed to if you think commodity prices are going to rise? Uh, and once we have that universe, uh, we are using, once again, qualitative judgment and the, the output of, well, it's really a combination of quant uh, and fundamental insights uh, to try to figure out how we would target different segments of the market. The point of targeting different segments of the market is to promote some diversification. Uh, for example, with solar, where there are a lot of companies uh, in the solar industry that we won't do business with. We just we can't get comfortable with the industry dynamics. There aren't. Um, it's very difficult for a company in the solar industry to have a moat. It's a simple commoditized technology. Uh, there are uh, very low barriers to entry. There's no product differentiation. You know, Apple doesn't have a cool white solar panel that has Wi-Fi or anything like that uh, that people are willing to pay a 30% premium for. You just buy a dopey gray solar panel and you, you're going to evaluate it based on the cheapest panel per unit of electricity produced. Uh, so because of all these things and, the low, and, and especially the low barriers to entry, and there are a lot of players and there's dumping by the Chinese. So that right there is kind of a soup of industry dynamics you don't want. You don't want an industry where there's no product differentiation, simple commoditized technology, lots of players, low barriers to entry. Well, we end up with a very small number of solar companies in our universe, yet solar is a big part of, of what we need to do, uh, at least for the foreseeable future. And so we'll, we want to set a target for our portfolio that's reflecting its importance to some extent, not just its investability. And then we have a quant model that looks at the targets, looks at our sense of the value and momentum uh, of the companies in our universe, obviously is aware of the universe that we have, pays attention to liquidity and, and a few other factors, uh, and synthesizes a starting point for us and says, here's a proposed portfolio, more or less, and we make adjustments to that portfolio based on the fundamental uh, research that we're doing into these companies and industries. So we have... Um, a, a team of analysts who, you know, spend their time digging into all of these things. Uh, and, and we don't deify the quant model weights and think that they're just magically right or they can't be adjusted or changed. Uh, at the end of the day, our goal is to have the portfolio that we have the most conviction in, that we're the most confident in, so that if things go against us in an industry or an investment or, or what have you, uh, we're more in a position where we are trying to figure out, do we want to double down, take advantage of the weak prices uh, to rotate in, or do we do, have we lost some confidence? Whereas if you're just following a pure 
quant process, you don't you don't really know how to react. You just kind of, I guess, close your eyes and hope for the best. Are you able to get data on these sorts of issues, climate-related issues? Is there good data that you can run through a quantitative process? Uh, well, the data that we're looking at in terms of the quant model, uh, we're looking at standard financials and market data, right? So we're looking at the fundamentals of the company. Uh, we're looking at their market data uh, and, and things of that nature. So there's nothing specific in the quant model uh, that is aware of what's happening in the world, if that makes sense, sure. beyond uh, the financials, other than these, these allocation targets that we set uh, that give some sense of importance to the model. On the environmental side, when we're like trying to figure out what impact is climate change having on the world right now, we have all sorts of other data sources that don't feed directly into the quant model but help to inform our, our thought processes. Okay, so in terms of the universe of, of stocks that you're looking at, how large a universe is out there? Uh, we have about 450 companies in our universe. And that gets whittled down to how many in a portfolio? We have about 120 uh, names in the portfolio, 120, 130. And, and in terms of how that portfolio is allocated, what would be the main groups of opportunities that you look at? You mentioned solar as being one example. What are some others? Yeah, so our universe, when we're, when we're thinking about the universe, the first thing we have to, to do or had to do when we were first developing it is figure out what, what business models fit. So there are two kind of broad categories. One is companies focused on mitigating climate change. Uh, the other is companies focused on helping the world adapt to climate change. Uh, so on the mitigation side, we're obviously going to have the clean energy companies. So wind, solar, geothermal, clean power generation companies like that. We're also going to have battery and storage companies, batteries for electric vehicles, storage for utility scale energy storage. Um, any sort of energy efficiency effort is brilliant because that's probably the best way to mitigate climate change is just use 20, 30, 40, 50% less energy, whether that's energy efficient building materials, energy efficient lighting, electrical components, appliances, just using less energy is, is probably the most effective way uh, of fighting climate change. We talked earlier about the electric grid and how it needs to be overhauled. So uh, companies focused on uh, in modernizing and improving and building out our electric grids, which will allow us to incorporate a much higher percentage of renewables uh, would be within scope. And then importantly, technologies and materials that go into all of these efforts. So we might look at electric vehicles, uh, which technically we classify as an energy efficiency play uh, in some way. Uh, and we might decide, well, we're bullish on electric vehicles. We think they're going to take over the world, not in a Terminator kind of sense, hopefully, but at least take over the roadways. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we can get excited about investing in Tesla or BYD. These are companies that are very expensive in an industry which, by the way, has historically been a very low multiple industry. You go look at the major automobile manufacturers, you're talking about companies trading at P's of five, six, seven, and all of a sudden you get to Tesla at you know, 200 times earnings or whatever it is uh, at a given moment, BYD at 30, 40, 50. Uh, they're just very expensive. Uh, there's also an assumption those expensive valuations imply a certain level of market share that they're going to get. And that's just an unknowable thing. You can be the best analyst in the world and still have no idea how much market share Tesla is going to get versus every other automobile manufacturer 
And they're all coming out with electric vehicle lines, BMW, Mercedes, Volvo, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, even dopey old Ford and GM, oh, I, I don't know if I should say dopey old Ford and GM, but dopey old Ford and GM are coming out with their uh, electric vehicle lines as well. So, um, you know, how else can we express a view on uh, electric vehicles? We don't want to invest, we don't want to play the market share game, we don't want the expensive valuations, and at least in the case of Tesla, uh, we're not super excited about the governance. I mean, you've got Musk running around smoking pot on podcasts, which just for the record, I'm not doing right now. Uh, you know, drinking alcohol and making jokes about going bankrupt on April Fool's Day and getting sued by the SEC for fraud. I mean, there's a huge governance question there as well. So we maybe we want to play electric vehicles, but we do it via semiconductors, which are used four, five, six times as much in electric vehicles as they are in internal combustion engine vehicles. Maybe we do it via the lithium-ion battery manufacturers or the material, the raw materials themselves, so lithium, copper, nickel, cobalt, etc. There are a lot of other ways that you can express those views, and there we can find companies that are much more attractively valued, uh, but still give you that same exposure, the, the tailwinds uh, from long-term secular growth. Okay, so you've you've defined a universe, you've looked at companies that can mitigate and companies that can solve these problems, and you've put together a portfolio. How does an investor use this strategy within the context of their broader investment portfolio? So would they consider this to be just another equity strategy, an alternative strategy? Where would they put it? Yeah, that's a good question and one that I think um, some of our prospects and investors uh, have have struggled with uh, over the last couple of years since we launched our strategy. Um, my favorite framing of it is as a global equity alpha play. Um, we do have people who have thought of it that way, that here's a strategy uh, that at least hopefully we can make a compelling case will generate superior returns over the long term, but importantly also will do it in a different way uh, than the broad equity market gives you equity returns. Uh, what Our universe is a tiny sliver, let's say 1% or 2% of the broad equity market, and its prospects aren't driven by what's going on with GDP growth or broad economic profitability or whatever drives the broad equity market. It's really going to be about the transition to clean energy, what's going to happen in the electric vehicle industry, uh, and all of those good things. What does it mean? Well, how does the world evolve in a way to fight climate change is really what's going to drive our strategy, not broad economic uh, kind of market conditions. So if you think you can get superior returns uh, and you can get it, in, it with a different return profile than the broad equity market, that's, that's pretty compelling in and of itself, and it's not clear that you need anything more than that to get excited about positioning it. But the most common framing, which I, to be perfectly honest, I didn't foresee when we launched the strategy, uh, has been to position it as part of uh, a real asset buckets. So for those who already have exposure to real assets, have a lot of exposure to energy, uh, investing in clean energy, new energy, the, you know, the energy transition uh, is a natural way for people to fit uh, this into their portfolio. Uh, and increasingly, as I'm sure you're aware, there are also institutional investment managers uh, and multifamily offices and, and everything else, uh, big single-family offices, who have a sustainability or impact or, or ESG mandate as well. And so they are increasingly making exposures, not all uh, uh, institutional managers, but a lot are make, increasingly making um, targeted allocations to green, whatever you, you know, however they frame it but sustainable strategies in some way, shape, or form. And, and this obviously fits in 
well for that or for other kind of more thematically oriented investors. Uh, the final way that I could imagine it being positioned, although I'd be lying if I said I was aware of anyone who did it, but I kind of referenced it earlier, um, which is I think it's reasonable to think, hey, we don't really know the exact, we don't know how the future is going to play out. We don't know exactly what's going on with the climate. We know it, it's probably not on a great tra trajectory, but there's a lot of uncertainty. But if climate change plays out the way a lot of people in the scientific community and the experts, the global uh, scientific experts think climate change is going to play out, that could have a significant impact on pretty much all sectors of the economy. Wouldn't you want an investment that's going to perform well in the, the event that, that that plays out? So it's kind of like protecting your portfolio from inflation risk. You want something in your portfolio that will perform well when that risk plays out. And so I think it's a reasonable kind of form of insurance almost. I think that last point about insuring against a very bad climate outcome affecting the rest of your portfolio is a very important one. Uh, typically, I've found that with things like that, and you see that even with other forms of portfolio insurance, for example, investment in inflation-linked bonds, as an example, you know, most people will hold some for the reason that they're worried about an unanticipated increase in inflation. But they never seem to hold enough to really help them if inflation does break out. And I'm just wondering whether you see the same behaviour with people in terms of how they allocate to climate change strategies in that they, they like the idea of having it in their portfolio as a hedge. And they, they like the idea that it will protect them, but then they allocate 2 or 3%, which in the scheme of things is probably not going to help very much. So... You know, if we did get an outcome where climate affects the values of a broader portfolio, realistically, how much would they need to allocate to something like this to really pay off as a hedge? I don't know exactly what they would, you know, depend on what they're invested in and what the rest of their portfolio looks like. So I don't know that there's one answer to that, but I agree with you. I think it is far-fetched at this point in time uh, with ESG and sustainable strategies being really in their early in the early period of their development, I would say, for an investor to come along to a climate change strategy, which is not one of the style boxes that the, the consultant community uh, uses and, and make a huge allocation to it that would really uh, serve as more of, of an insurance vehicle. So I, I think you're right. In reality, it's it's relatively small allocations that people are looking at making to climate change strategies and, and to be honest, we're not speaking, familiar with many others. But Speaking of consultants, they're always an easy target. Are they thinking enough about these issues, do you think? Well, interestingly, the consultants, uh, the, the major consultants are pretty far out in front on this issue and have been publishing significant works and putting a significant amount of their research time uh, into thinking about climate change and the impact that that could have on their portfolios uh, and how uh, maybe to a lesser extent also how you would take advantage of opportunities associated with climate change. But certainly from a risk perspective, they have been focused on it for a few years now. You know, there, were, there have been some works that have been published, you know, even three, four, five years ago from, from the major consulting shops. So I, I think they're actually pretty far out in front on this and open-minded about it. And uh, we've gotten very strong interest and, and feedback from the consultants that we've talked to about the strategy. That's good. And how about on the client side? Uh, on the client side, there's been a lot of interest. Once again, I think it comes down to some extent to some of the questions you've been asking about how you would allocate to it. It's not a comfortable 
allocation. If you think uh, Jeremy Grantham is always talking about career risk as, as a huge driver of investment decision making. Well, it, you don't have much career risk if you say, hey, let's allocate to the S&P 500 uh, or an Acqui index fund or, or something like that. Uh, if you uh, are sitting there and you're advocating for a 15% position uh, in your overall portfolio to a climate change strategy, you, you better hope it works, right? There's a, a tremendous amount of career risk. So I think it's uh, difficult for some investors, even if they personally buy into it, to get comfortable with what it means to their career to really advocate for that uh, to, to whoever they report to or their investment committee. Many of our listeners will know that the team here at GMO has a pretty thick skin when it comes to career risk. So do your multi-asset portfolios allocate to the climate and resources strategy? And if so, how much do they invest in the strategies? Uh, yes, yeah, so our, um, our asset allocation group, which runs our multi-asset portfolios, they are invested. We, also, we have a variant of our resources strategy that's a long short uh, strategy. So they're invested in the long short strategy because that fits into uh, how they're, they're approaching their portfolios right now. For the climate change strategy, it's a little bit more challenging because our asset allocation team is heavily driven by their seven-year asset class forecasts, which are, are heavily followed in, in the industry uh, and, and quite well known. Uh, and it's very difficult to come up with a seven-year forecast for the climate change sector. The, the entire kind of premise of our seven-year asset class forecast is that you're looking at a broad swath of the economy and you're saying if companies are expensive across the entire market, if profit margins are elevated or low across the entire market, then and you're looking at a big diversified basket of companies, then hey, there there might there must be something going on here, and we would expect those things to mean revert over a, a given period of time. And we've chosen seven years as uh, a reasonable length of time uh, to expect that reversion. Well, the more narrow you get, now you're not looking across all sectors. Now you're looking at you know a, a climate change strategy like ours is really heavily exposed to the utilities industry, uh, heavily exposed to industrials, which is where a lot of the uh, wind turbine manufacturers and energy efficiency companies get classified. But you're not, you know, we don't have any exposure to healthcare. We don't have any exposure to financials, et cetera, et cetera. Well, now it's much harder to forecast that group of stocks uh, because secular growth can be a, a much more defining uh, factor in the return that you get from from that basket. So that was a long way of saying it's difficult to forecast the climate change sector. Uh, and, and by its very nature, it's a growthy area of the market because this is really a secular growth story after all. Um, but we don't know with precision how how much growth there's going to be or, and over exactly what, what time period. Uh, and so it doesn't really fit into our forecasting framework uh, well enough for them to get comfortable with it. Okay. One of the things I've never really understood about the topic of stranded assets, and I'm hoping you can help me understand it better, is ultimately whether or not something is a good or bad investment comes down to the price that you pay for it. So, so take oil as an example. If you're paying, a, say, a price to cash flow multiple of 10 times to purchase an oil field, well, how is that asset stranded if people continue to use oil for the next 10 years because you'll, you'll get back the money that you put into the oil field and maybe some more if it takes longer than 10 years. So doesn't the issue of whether or not something is stranded depend on the timing of when 
we stop using these commodities. Uh, and if you can buy them cheaply enough, is it still an attractive investment opportunity even if one day it becomes stranded because you sort of haven't paid for that? Sure. If You, you know, I'm anti-coal, but if you uh, tell me that there's a coal company out there and I can get it for one times uh, cash flow uh, and I don't think coal's going out of business in the next year, uh, obviously I'll snap, <laughs> snap it up in a heartbeat. So, yeah, I don't... I think it all comes down to what you're paying for uh, something and and how long you think it's going to be able to uh, produce. But you can end up with stranded assets for a few different reasons. It can be pure tech. It doesn't even. It, there could be carbon pricing. There could be carbon regulation where you're just told you can't produce anymore. Uh, it could be in the form of technological disruption. So there's no public policy at all. It's just solar and wind with storage are dramatically cheaper than coal. Are you ever going to build a new coal plant or are you going to finish building the coal plants that you already started or are you going to shut down existing capacity? So things can happen pretty quickly uh, and 10 years might sound like a short period of time in the grand scheme of things, but a lot can happen in 10 years. Uh, the other thing is not only do you need oil to be around, let's say you're buying your oil field, well, let's say your cost of production is, uh, I don't know, $40 a barrel and uh in that 10-year period, enough demand uh, has been worn away by electric vehicles taking off and, and this, that, and the other thing, that all of a sudden oil prices are at $20 a barrel. Well, maybe you're able to produce all your reserves because you've sunk so much CapEx into uh, the asset in the first place that you bother running it out. But effectively, you ended up with a stranded asset, even if technically you ended up producing all your reserves because you're, you're kind of doing uneconomic things at that point. Uh, because of your sunk upfront costs. You also mentioned briefly earlier in our conversation the topic of nuclear energy. Is nuclear in some ways a more viable solution than renewables or how should we approach the topic of nuclear nuclear power because it seems to stir up a lot of emotions in people? Yeah, nuclear is a really interesting uh, question and I, I think it's clear as day to me that we should have gone to nuclear in the 1960s and 1970s with reckless abandon and, and really gotten off of fossil fuels back then. The, the climate science was already well known uh, by the 70s in, in kind of the scientific community and even in upper levels of government uh, where they had been briefed on it. Uh, and we should have been moving aggressively. But talk about a political issue that's tough to win. Nobody wants a nuclear plant in their backyard. That's political dynamite. So everyone always goes up with their anti-nuclear uh, political campaigns, with a few exceptions in, in France and whatnot. I mean, you look at Germany. Germany is, is considered a world leader in clean energy. Uh, they're always held up as kind of the gold standard in Europe, as, as kind of uh, having a tremendous amount of renewables and having put a tremendous amount of money uh, into their, their renewable infrastructure. But what they did is they displaced nuclear. Right? So they shut down their nuclear factories and started up renewables. Well, in terms of carbon dioxide emissions, that's basically flat, right? You haven't really improved. Uh, and, and now, because of the intermittency issue with the renewables, they have these coal plants that they have to leave running all the time because they weren't desi designed to be turned on and off. And sometimes when there's enough renewable electricity in Germany, they actually just disconnect the, the generation. And so they're burning the coal but it's not actually generating electricity. It's just producing carbon dioxide emissions. So you end up with these kind of odd 
situations which are, are hard to, to make sense of. But going back to nuclear, at this point, it's my belief that, that we're close enough to being having a world where renewables plus storage is cheaper than nuclear, uh, that it would be really difficult to make the massive amount of upfront investment in nuclear, uh, knowing that the costs continue to fall for storage, continue to fall for wind and solar. Uh, it just seems like a very risky thing. And the, the CEO, it's one thing for me or for Jeremy or, or someone on the outside to some extent. I mean, we analyze and dig into these things uh, to say it. But the CEO of NextEra Energy, which is the world's biggest utility, uh, they have lots of nuclear assets on their books, lots of fossil fuel assets on their books, and also lots of renewable uh, stuff that they're involved in. Well, he came out a couple of years ago and said that by the early part of the next decade, so I don't know, 2022, 2023, something in that ballpark, wind and solar, excluding subsidies, will be cheaper than the operating cost of a nuclear or coal power plant. The operating cost. So you're giving them the nuclear plant for free. You're giving them the coal plant for free. It's still cheaper to invest in wind and solar and develop a new project. If anything like that is true, and I don't care if it's 2022 or 2025 or 2021, that will be truly disruptive for the utility industry. Uh, and, and we'll see a lot of changes very, very quickly. That's, that's very interesting. So, so if you had to leave our listeners with a, a couple of thoughts about climate risk, climate opportunities in their portfolio, what would they be? Um, I guess we just think this is a really exciting opportunity set where we see a basket of companies in the climate change sector, as we've defined it once again, companies addressing mitigation and adaptation uh, to climate change that are positioned to have some pretty significant secular growth tailwinds, yet we can find opportunities where these companies are trading at significant discounts to the market. Uh, and when you normally, a normal value strategy, you're buying companies at a discount, you expect them to undergrow the market uh, or your portfolio to undergrow the market, uh, but you expect the multiple expansion to more than offset that. That's kind of the, the nature of a value strategy. Well, here, because you're investing in this high secular growth area of the market, it may be possible, it's our thesis that it is possible, to buy companies at a discount that don't actually undergrow, that, that are able to keep up with the market or maybe even outgrow the market. And if you can do that over a long period of time, uh, you're, you're not just going to perform well, you're going to perform very, very well. Uh, so the current opportunity set we think is really exciting. It's not like the tech bubble. In the tech bubble, the market saw a lot of secular growth coming, and boy, were you forced to pay for it. You were going to pay 100, 200, 300 times earnings or, or infinite times negative earnings uh, to get access to that, to that secular growth. Well, here, you're not forced, other, outside of the electric vehicle manufacturers that I was talking about, you don't see much hype. You don't see really expensive companies. You don't see uh, untenable valuations. You see companies that you can get excited about and comfortable with. Uh, that are exposed to to that secular growth. Lucas White, thank you for joining us on the podcast. It's been a pleasure to find out more about uh, your work and the opportunities in climate and resource investing. Well, thanks for having me and being interested. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.